My name is Era, and I'm the host of the Tamil Creator Podcast. I chat with creators from all over the world to share their stories and discuss hot topics in a way that I hope inspires, educates, and entertains you. So, Sarah, how's uh, how's life treating you? You're just uh, getting better from COVID. Yeah, so COVID was a while ago, but definitely happy and headed into the summer without it, <laughs> with a little boosted immunity on my end. Um, but doing well. Just came back from factory visit in Portugal, so that was exciting. Oh, so it was a it was a work trip, but really, it wasn't it was, a work trip. <laughs> no, it was a, it was definitely a work trip. I wish it was longer. I wish I was not back in New York, to be honest. But um, no, it was good. It was productive. Tell me about New York. So in terms of, I've been there like a number of times just because Toronto proximity wise, it's like the easiest city for us to visit driving mm-hmm. or like flying. I've always loved the energy in New York and obviously that was pre-pandemic. Um, you've been there like in the New York area for a while. Has that energy of like that hustle and bustle come back to New York or has it kind of changed because of COVID and like, you know, businesses shutting down and things like that? You know, I was actually in the city a few like a week ago. Um, and the energy is definitely back. So last year, you know, I checked into the city for meetings and it was such a different feel from what New York is usually about, which is that high energy. Everyone's out and about, you know, the, the sidewalks are crowded and packed, um, with people dining. But then last year, you know, given COVID there was definitely a decline in tourism and you felt the energy. And a lot of New Yorkers also just started moving out to the suburbs. So they would move to Hudson Valley, they would move to Westchester or even to out of state like Connecticut. Um, So we definitely felt the energy drop a bit, but I will say, like I mentioned, was there a couple of, um, a week, like a week ago and it is packed. Like tourism is back, everyone is in the streets. Um, It does feel good because it was a bit depressing. Um, So it's nice to see that folks are out and about. Um, That said, people aren't wearing masks. So we're probably definitely going to see another surge of COVID (laughs) the next couple of weeks. Well, um, trying to, again, guys, I'm trying something new. For those of you listening, uh, this is another episode of the Tamil Creator. I'm your host, Era. And today um, I have someone named Sarah Sukumaran. Did I get that right? Yes. Yes. I'm so bad with the last names. her, her name might sound familiar because she was featured on TamilCulture.com. She's got an amazing story. She's a CEO and founder of Lilith NYC, which is a footwear brand based in Queens, New York. And the brand focuses on being a brand for women, femmes, and all underrepresented folks in the sneaker world. So, uh, Sarah, thanks for jumping on, making time on this beautiful Monday after, evening. I don't know if it's beautiful for you over there, but it's really nice weather for us in Toronto. Yeah, it's gorgeous outside. And thank you so much for having me. Um, and thank you for featuring us on Tamil Culture a while back. It's exciting to be here on the podcast today. Awesome. Well, I'm always fascinated by the beginning. Um, I feel like childhood really sets the tone for kind of, I mean, whether it's good or bad, it kind of, there's a lot of things determined in childhood that kind of come out later on. So in your upbringing, um, how did, were there any kind of signs or just anything that you would eventually become an entrepreneur or like this person that's absolutely obsessed with like footwear. Um, you know, tell us about that. I'm not sure about the entrepreneur part. I was definitely a book nerd. So I did a lot of reading. Um, our parents definitely fostered, you know, going to the library and, you know, getting loaning out the books. And so that was a huge part of our childhood. Um, but I was definitely just a math and science nerd. So I really personally never thought I would end up in footwear that said, I was super obsessed with sneakers when I was an eight-year-old um, and onwards. So a bit of a tomboy. It was not really athletic, so I didn't play sports, but definitely hung out with guys on, you know, whether it was the handball courts or the basketball courts and just had this affinity for like the basketball silhouettes. Had no business wearing them, but always craved those um, or even just silhouettes like Air Max uh, Plus or Air Max 95. So I would say as early as eight years old, I was kind of fond of sneakers, but never thought for a second that this would be my career now, looking back. <laughs> so I guess since you love math and like the sciences and just things like that, was that what kind of got you going towards the path, the path of tech? So like you working at, I think you worked at a bunch of tech companies before you started at Nike. So mm-hmm. was that kind of the connection there? You know, I think looking back, my the path wasn't ever linear. Um, so I definitely was interested in math and science, you know, up until high school, I thought I would be pre-med, 
And then I made kind of like a game time decision senior year to just do business management. So I like went to the guidance counselor, the guidance counselor in the U S is like someone who like helps you get into college or university. And so I was like, just tell me all of like the four-year business programs. Like I like just decided very quickly that I wanted to pursue a degree that was far more broader and would give me kind of, you know, opportunities in different fields. And like, if I did want to do something in the sciences, I can still be in biotech, but had a business angle to it. So game time decision, senior year of high school to kind of go the business management route. And then from there, I would say still not linear because I thought I would be a consultant, like, you know, work for one of the big fours and kind of pursue that route. Um, But that didn't happen. I graduated in 2008, which was like the height of the financial crisis um, pretty much everywhere and uh, ended up actually like in a marketing role at a company, email marketing company called Cheetah Mail. And from that path on, I would say it kind of exposed me to the tech world, like implementation engineer roles and customer success and, you know, learning the backend systems. And so it was really like on the job training that kind of put me on that, I would say, computer science journey that I didn't know that I would love. Um, so yeah, not quite linear at all, my path. <laughs> if you were looking back, like, cause I'm always fascinated by, I think with school as well, I mean, it's definitely going to change, but did you feel like anything you learned like in high school or like college or university, did that help you? in like your work life or was it more you have to learn on the like learn on the job or like learn like researching on your own I'm just curious I think I definitely so in terms of the tech career I definitely learned um things on the job I always joke that like my undergrad degree was the hardest training like I went to the school called Babson it was a four-year business program they like it's an intense workload on top of that your freshman year you're running your own business with your other um the other students in your class Um, And then you have your extracurriculars. So that was a program that I think really put us through the gauntlet and we had to figure out time management. Like that's the number one skill I learned, which is why I think today, like I'm able to manage a hundred things on my own and it doesn't stress me out as much. I I will still say like, I love the sciences. Like I'm such a nerd. I love reading any article about like, like genomics or anything like that. So that's still definitely of interest, but I just knew, I think going the career the tech career path was that it was definitely like better ROI, right? Like better bang for your buck compared to these programs that like put you into debt. Like that was something like growing up with a lot of, you know, just my parents being in debt and us not having a lot of money. Like I did not want to have any of that growing up. And so I did have student um, loan debt, but I knew that a career in tech would help me pay that down very quickly. Um, So the ROI was just better. So I would say everything I've learned on, from the tech perspective definitely didn't come from schooling, but just on the job training, like shadowing like the CTOs or the developers or the engineers um, who were very kind in uh, taking me under their wing. So it seems like tech was more of a practical decision. I mean, there's probably some underlying love for it as well. Yeah, I think I, actually. So do you think in the future, I mean, I'm jumping way ahead, but mm-hmm. like in the future, do you think there is a world where you kind of go back to your science, your love of science and pursue something in that realm or? Not really. You know, I always think of, um, you know, it's it's inspired me in some different ways. So I always read like the, the science section in the New York Times. Like that's a, a thing that my dad really drilled into me. He used to bring home the New York Times, like the actual physical paper and actually taught us like vocabulary words. Like we would have to, he would highlight words and then we'd have to go look up the, you know, true Tamil dad, like go mm-hmm. look up the word in the dictionary and um, practice. And that's kind of like where my love of science has come from. And I just always, even today, will share articles with friends but I think it's it's more from a creative perspective now. Like now I'm inspired by like, there's a, there's a little, um, there's a bird that was like almost extinct in the Philippines that the colors of the feathers are gorgeous. And now in my head, I'm like, okay, that could be a really dope colorway for footwear. And so like, I think my love has kind of evolved mm-hmm. from being something super scientific to like, how do we then transcribe that into something creative on something that we're doing through the, the brand storytelling or through the colorway stories that we have. So still in love with science, um, still haven't figured it out. But I think even from a materials perspective on footwear, there are so many interesting things happening just from a sustainability standpoint, like, you know, mushrooms and cactus Mm -hmm. is being used for vegan leather today. So definitely some scientific applications there that I'm sure we'll dive into at some point, but it's not too far away. (laughs) You you mentioned your dad kind of, I'm guessing at a very young age, like kind of drilling science through like the New York Times um, Mm -hmm. to you guys. I know now you're, you might be appreciative of kind of 
the that exercise or kind of that love that you've developed as a result of him doing that at the time how did you feel that was it more of kind of an annoying thing or did you actually enjoy learning about things as he kind of put you through the kind of ringer of this exercise I think it's a little bit of both obviously I think most of us hated our parents like with, you know, they're crazy. Like my dad was really strict. Like he, we had a, we didn't have summers. Like we had a schedule that we had to adhere to um, during summer break. So we never really had a school break. Like we had to study and they, you know he would buy these books from Barnes and Nobles like workbooks that we'd have to do. Um, so I think at the time it was super annoying but I think in hindsight, like, holy shit like really prepped us for our education. Um, and I think give us, gave us that kind of regiment but I think the science thing was always something I was naturally excited about and so yeah it was annoying that he would make me read it but I was super I thought like I actually thought I was going to go decode the human genome like that was what I thought my mm -hmm. career was going to be in it got decoded way in advance and so that's kind of why I like didn't pursue genetics at that point and kind of flipped into business so it's a little bit of both <laughs> there's so many things exciting or interesting things happening in genetics especially around I don't know the term I only follow it because of the business applications of like um I you probably know the terminology but like if there's certain diseases where they remove certain um DNA markers or RNA yeah. mark well, I don't know what the term is called but it helps reduce the likelihood of you getting that disease or the impact of that disease um so a lot of cool stuff there that I don't understand but it sounds very applicable yeah. or yeah so no, I like I am. It's terrible from a marketing perspective because they're probably using our data. But like, I am all about like 23andMe and ancestry. Mm. Like, I'm like the family historian in that sense. <laughs> but it also they, those reports tell you like you know what you're predisposed to based on you know your genetic markers, which I think is fascinating. So, still a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll kind of jump back to the shoe world. So, you know, you were in tech for a bit, and then you know that was kind of you made a couple of pit spot pit stops, and then obviously you got the opportunity at Nike, and um, it's just like, you know, whenever you, especially as someone that loves sports and if any, if anyone's read Shoe Dog, just like Nike has a certain allure about it. So mm -hmm. when you got the opportunity to be like that director of product role, tell us like what you did, what you learned and kind of how that provided the, maybe the jumping spot or the, the, the jump off spot for you to kind of make your move and start your own brand eventually. This episode is sponsored by Nobody. That's right, Nobody. So if you could be kind enough to hit that subscribe button, that would mean a lot to me. Yeah. So I think at that point, it was 2018 when I was interviewing with them, they had reached out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I think mainly driven by the fact that I had early in my career been in the startup space, but then at the, at the last startup I was at um, for two years, I had a product, uh, we got acquired by SAP. So I was at SAP for three years and around 2016, Nike had announced something called the consumer direct offense. So they were really focused on moving away from wholesale, which is what they've historically operated in and moving to, you know, learning how to sell to Sarah directly as a consumer. And with that came a ton of internal changes as well as acquisitions of, and in this case was a predictive analytics company that they had acquired. And so they needed a head of product or director of product to come in and revamp this specific predictive analytics platform for the internal Nike stakeholders. So whether you were in Nike finance or merchandising and marketing, you know, how do you make sense of the data that we've collected for over 10 years and like really figure out how to kind of dive deep into these customer profiles. And so for me, who's been sneaker obsessed since an eight-year-old, I thought that was like a dream job because one, I love data and that's kind of been my career, like the analytics space. Um, but then the ability to and also just focus on footwear consumers, right? And, and women footwear consumers, which was a particular interest of me, for me. Um, so that was super exciting. Um, obviously at that point, I was also itching to kind of leave the job I was at previously because I was there, you know, working on the same product for five years between the startup and, and SAP acquiring us, I'd been working on the same platform for five years. And for me, was just kind of just, you know, itching to work on something new at that point. So it kind of fell in my lap just at the perfect time, to be quite honest. Um, and when I was there, I would say, you know, I think it's, um, it's interesting. Like I had been used to and accustomed to working at a larger company, but something to remember is that SAP is a tech company, right? Um, it's something that all of my colleagues was very well-versed in tech stacks and the language, you know, we all spoke the same language essentially. I think going to Nike is that Nike historically hasn't been a tech company. It's been more of a marketing company. Um, and there is a bit of that gap when you work with larger teams or other teams, you know, in different cities. And so for me, that was a bit of a learning curve, just 
kind of adapting to the speed at which they worked, which was far slower. And, you know, I come from the startup background, so I'm all about like shipping code, like continuously versus um, on a quarterly basis or a six, you know, six month basis. And so I think that was something that was a bit of adjustment to start. But I think, you know, in hindsight, I had always been fascinated by the women's footwear space. Like I had this idea in 2015 that I wanted to do something then, um, but really never acted on it because I didn't have the financial means to do so. But um, when I was at Nike, you know, you're talking to, to both consumers, you're talking to stakeholders um, internally, and you're just realizing that like, these bigger companies simply can't move as fast as, you know, a startup can. Um, so I think that's kind of where, you know, I was only there for less than two years, but I knew that I didn't want to have that regret of not starting a company. And so that if I wanted to do what I just had to do it now, like women sneaker heads were being very vocal about the gaps in the market, the industry as a whole was talking about it. Um, so I gave notice after a short two years there. And why didn't you, out of curiosity, like, why didn't you, I guess, start building Lilith on the side, like incrementally while you had kind of not the safety net, but I guess mm-hmm. that of Nike and maybe even learnings. And then, you know, once you got to a certain point, go all in on Lilith, like what made you decide to kind of just go all in at the beginning? I think it was one, I think it's definitely conflict of interest. Like you definitely can't start a business in the same space um, without getting called out. I got lucky though on my, when I, I gave four week notice because like there's a lot of stuff at that level you have to hand off. Um, so four weeks notice, I actually got notified by the legal team that they waived my non-compete. So I kind of l- got lucky because I actually was operating of, I'm going to quit my job and just be in stealth mode for a year because I think there was like an 18 month like non-compete rule or something, which was fine, right? Because I'm building a brand new company from the, the ground up. So I was like, that's plenty of time for me being in stealth. But they actually told me that they were waiving my non-compete. So I was like, okay, this is awesome. So I don't have to necessarily build quietly. Um, but yeah, I think for me, I had... I think coming from the startup background, like I had known, I always wanted to do something in the startup space. So I had that um, intuition of doing something for so long. So I wasn't too scared. Um, and two, I think, you know, I had kind of alluded to having this idea in 2015. I, I would say that for five years, I was operating with a feeling of regret, right? Like whether it was at the SAP job or at Nike of not doing something um, because I knew that I, I was that consumer I was targeting. I knew I had the data that women were outspending men's in sneaker sales, but no one was really quick to move on this opportunity. So I was just like, you just got to act and just quit your job and just dive into it. If it fail, I always said to myself, like, if it fails, it fails fine. But if it succeeds, it succeeds. And you won't wake up with that same regret that I had for five years. Um, so for me, it was mainly kind of like, calming that feeling that I hadn't gotten rid of. From like a financial perspective, how did you plan for, like you said, like leaving Nike and building this brand full time, given like, you know, it would take a certain amount of time before you had a product that was sellable and getting sales and obviously recouping your investment. So how did you think about that? So I would say I had a bad rep with my family and friends that I, you know, coming from startups, like we jump jobs every two years. So I have a really bad rep for that. And so I did really take the Nike job being like, I want to settle down. Like, you know, I want to, I've been told even from the recruiter at the time, like people stay 25, 30, 40 years, right. They have long tenures at Nike. So I was actually really excited about the prospect. Even when I was talking to the recruiter, I'd ask a lot of questions about like long-term career growth, getting a mentor. So I was really trying to like buckle down and like, okay, Sarah, like your startup days are kind of behind you, like get into like a bigger company and, you know, and work your way up. But I think very quickly as, as I, soon as I got into a company like Nike, I was like, holy shit, this is really slow. This is not my personality. Um, love it. Like the people were great, but it just wasn't my speed. Um, so I had actually been, again, thinking about settling down, was actually saving for a down payment on a house. Cause I was finally at the point where like I was living out of a suitcase for many years. Cause my job required me to travel quite a bit was literally never home. So I was like, okay, you're going to be like settled. You can like buy a home. So I actually ended up redirecting the funds that I had saved for a down payment um, to answer your question (laughs) to the startup. So that was the risk that I took. So I don't have a house, but I do have a business. (laughs) (laughs) It's a wise investment. I think in the startup world and like, if I think if you have an entrepreneurial itch, Mm -hmm. you know, not like working at another company, even if it's another startup just won't like satisfy that itch. So it's just funny hearing that. Um, 
when so when you told everyone or like everyone thought you're going to be at Nike for a while and then it's like two years in, hey guys, I'm leaving. I'm going to do my, I got my own brand. I'm going to be launching. Um, what was the social commentary like from friends and family? Was anybody like woohoo or were they like again or like, like what was like the general sense of what people were saying to you? I think my mom was the most like conservative about it because she was like, oh, you're really like secure at SAP. Like I'd been traveling a lot. Like I think from a success standpoint, um, you know, I was making good money at SAP. They were like, you're secure. Why would you, why would you jump again? Right. Cause I had this like history of like moving from startups. Um, I think though, that all of my family and friends knew that I was obsessed with sneakers and I'd always complain about how brands weren't doing it right how brands were failing. So I actually think that they were tired of hearing me complain for so long that they were actually, like, oh, fine, you're finally doing something about it. Um, so I think it was a mix of both. I think it was my mom was more probably the most conservative, but um, everyone else was like, oh, okay, finally, like, good. Like you're doing it. Um, and a lot of my friends like have been always supportive of, you know, entrepreneurship and, and pursuing that. So I think it, it resonated with them as well. So how did you come up with the Lilith name? And like, mm-hmm. What was the process like of you had this idea, but like I've always been fascinated by e-commerce businesses just because of that physical, that physical lyric, which I I think I would find very hard to do. Like I like digital where like there's no shipping costs, mm-hmm. no worrying about like, you know, cost of like goods going up. So like I guess number one, how'd you come up with the name and like kind of the brand? Um, and then number two, like how did you go about starting to actually build something that you could sell? Yeah. So the Lilith name actually came about in 2015. So I think I, you know, I mentioned how I really wanted to do something. I was itching to do it. And the CEO I was working with at the time was like, just start blogging. Right. Cause I, again, I was complaining about it left and right at work. And he's like, and he saw, I would have dual screens at the tech startup. And he's like, uh-huh. what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm trying to shop for these sneakers. And he's like, you should just start, you know, create an Instagram account and start blogging about it. So I actually purchased the domain in 2015 And at the time I was wearing a lot of New Balance. So I would just like post a daily photo of like what kicks I was wearing. Beyond that, didn't do anything. I had a Tumblr page. It just had photos. That was it. Called it a day. Um, We were in the middle of an acquisition. So I just didn't have time to really, I was like kind of like scatterbrained at that point. Um, So that was kind of the the start of Lilith. But the Lilith is her story is actually, she's um, in, you know, biblical mythology and Sumerian Jewish history was Adam's first wife. It's not Eve. And she gets banished from the Garden of Eden because she doesn't want to be submissive to Adam, even though they're both made equally versus kind of Eve who's made from the rib of Adam. So I just thought it had like really interesting story because she's kind of demonized by male scholars and, you know, being a woman in tech and, you know, a lot of times your work gets accredited to men. Um, Same with being a woman in footwear. So I just felt like, you know, Lilith kind of is emerging as like, she is the first feminist. Um, and given how women have been treated in both industries, I just thought it was like the perfect name. Um, going to your second question about like why physical? Yeah, it's definitely crazy. Cost is insane. It wouldn't, it's not for the lighthearted. Um, it's a capital intensive business for sure. Like I cry thinking about how much I paid in air freight shipping last year because of COVID. Um, it wasn't pretty. Let's just say that. Um, but I think it's just something I'm passionate about. And I think the opportunity to me is like so obvious, right? Like women have been requesting women's product for so long and none of the big brands have acted on it. So for me, you know, I'm like, we are so small. Like I don't do any paid media marketing today. We've only done a bit of PR and I have people from like, you know, customers in Indonesia, customers in Europe who, who find out about us and purchase who then could go on to create this amazing content and will tag us in it. So to me, it's like, there's an obvious appetite for women's product. Um, and to me, it was just like always this low hanging fruit for other brands, but for some reason they've just overlooked it and kind of moved on to other opportunities. So for me, I was like, okay, this is, this makes sense for me to kind of like start working on immediately. So how did you create like the first pair of shoes, like the first item that you're going to sell? Like, like my brain just gets overwhelmed thinking about like the number one thing is probably like, where are you going to make it? Like, do you make it by hand first or do you go to a factory and like run a small batch? Like, how did you like identify the steps and like find the vendors or people you'd work with to create it? Cause I imagine you'd have to have a designer mm-hmm. and then source the material. And so like, yeah, tell us whatever you can or whatever you want to share about that. Yeah, no, I'm super transparent about the process. So I actually, when I had Did you know that every time you left a 5 out of 5 review for this podcast, 
a Tamil parent lets their child pursue a career in the creative arts? Okay, that's probably not true. But if there's a chance that it is, do you really want to jinx it? Leave a review. Do it for the young creative in you. Kind of like at the end of 2019, Mew, I wanted to leave the job at that point and started like just talking to random women from these different social groups that I belong to, putting the idea out there. I think as soon as I verbalized what I wanted to do, people just immediately would start putting me in contact with folks. They're like, absolutely, you should be doing this. Here's someone you should talk to. So that's actually how I got connected with the footwear team. Um, they were ex-Nike. This person had um, worked at Nike for 15 years and was running their own creative agency in New York and Harlem. And so met up with him directly. Um, he actually was part of the Yeezy uh, design team, the sure. 350, 750s. Um, and then he paired me up because he he even said, like, this is the first time someone's coming to me about women's footwear, women's sneakers in particular, and um, thought it was super dope. Then paired me with a designer, Sara Haramio, who's based in Colombia, and um, she became my kind of day to day designer. And so unfortunately, because of COVID, we did everything remote. Like I was in New York. Sarah was in Colombia. Um, we had Zoom calls. They then interacted. I kind of hi had hired them to be like also the liaison with the factory. And I think in another world, like other than COVID, I probably would have been more um, interactive with the factory and being on the floor in China. Um, so they kind of acted as that middleman for then. Um, so yeah, that was the process. A lot of Zoom calls, a lot of just um, Sarah working on tech packs, us revising it. And it was a long process. Like I thought you can get to tech pack within a few weeks, just me being completely ignorant about footwear, um, footwear development. And she really started like asking me questions about my childhood and like growing up in Queens and, you know, food culture in Queens and, you know, street carts and um, religion came up also um, in her, in her work. And that's kind of what then drove the storytelling behind the colorways and how that manifested. So for me, that was like brand new because I've never operated with the creative side of my brain. And so this was like really unlocking a completely different experience. Like I think I've always been so STEM focused that I didn't realize I had a creative side. Like people even today will call me a creative and it takes me a while to even accept that term because I've never seen myself as, as such. Um, so yeah, that was a little bit of the process on the footwear side. So you started off with factories in China and then I think you just mentioned you just got back from a trip in Portugal, yeah. I guess also on the factory side. So do you have multiple factories that you operate out of or like is there one place that you focus on now? So I got out of China only because... Um, for a few reasons. I mean, we obviously had like geopolitics, political issues with Russia, Ukraine, China. Um, also with COVID, countries like Vietnam and China tend to go into full lockdown. So like even as of two weeks ago, like Shanghai has been in, in, in lockdown. So um, it was just too risky and it was affecting even our last production run, which obviously with COVID, you know, obviously things are gonna be delayed. But the global supply chain issues are very real. Um, the product that you see today for some of the bigger brands um, was supposed to show up six months ago. So the stuff you see in store right now was, was around holiday, um, the collection from then. So I knew that I had to de-risk and kind of get out of uh, Asia at the moment, at least for the short term. So found a couple of factories um, in Portugal, started the sampling process there. Um, but also elsewhere, there's other places like India, Indonesia that you can go and manufacture as well. But I will say most people are at capacity because um, China and Vietnam kind of fell over where some of the major brands operate and everyone else then quickly filled up. So it's a constant battle to to make sure you have like backup plans and contingency plans in place. Do you think because of what you just described, you will see more local manufacturing or like 3D manufacturing to kind of cut down on the supply chain challenge? I'll address the first. So I think with domestic manufacturing, it's still very expensive. I had spoken to um, one or two uh, factories. And I think unless the consumer is willing to pay like a $500 for $500 per shoe, like it's just um, not possible just given labor cost. I think the 3D, I have a friend who's actually doing um, 3D printing work um, for scale. And I think that's, that's definitely going to change the future because then you're able to then do domestic manufacturing at a cheaper cost because, you know, obviously you're printing it just right now, I would say the technology, it does take quite a few, uh, you know, long hours to actually produce, you know, a pair of shoes. So that's the only thing so that, but with that said, you can mark up the price where it's then it makes sense against the labor involved there. Um, but yeah, domestic manufacturing would be awesome because shipping costs even today 
two years after height of COVID is still insanely high at the moment. I feel like there's also like um, an American pride in like things that are like made in America. So I thought it would might, it might be like a, almost like a competitive advantage. I know some brands yeah. kind of go for that. So I was just curious. Yeah, no, New Balance definitely has like a made in America line for sure. You know, I, I always say like, even in Queens, we have so much industrial space. Um, I've always thought about like bringing manufacturing here, but one, it's about recruiting the talent that's able to make footwear because it is so specific. Like even in Europe, it's so different than how China operates. Like Europe is so about the craftsmanship and like things are kind of passed down through families. Like it's like generational um, and it's different everywhere. So you really, to get that talent, you have to, you have to have a pipeline of that. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to bring it domestic at some point, but I'm not sure if it's realistic right now. So you, you know, you finally kind of figured out how to make the shoe. Um, did you have your first sale? Like, did you sell your shoes before you had anything in stock or that was made? Or like, did you want to have your product ready? And then you kind of started marketing and getting sales that way. What was the order? So because we were hearing that there was just insane delays, both on the factory, because our factory went into lockdown a few times um, and our timelines were getting pushed back quite a bit. We decided to roll out a pre-order model, which I think, you know, from a consumer perspective, everyone was getting accustomed to given COVID. So we kind of got lucky there. So in January of 21, we actually launched pre-orders on an illustration. So it was like an illustration of the shoe. Like we didn't even have a sample ready yet. Um, but I was lucky because I had this group of women who had been supporting my journey and they weren't even sneakerhead. They weren't really weren't the target demographic we were going after, but they really helped drive the pre-orders um, in January. And so every 30 days, I'd kind of give them an update. I thought the shoes were going to show up April 21. The shoes did not show up stateside till September. Wow. <laughs> you must have been sweating every month. You have to kind of report the delay. <laughs> right. At some point, like, yeah, exactly. And but it's funny because like your friends and family don't care. Like, honestly, like I, I say this to all the entrepreneurs, they really are there to support you. Like they didn't even bother reading the emails. They were like, it'll show up when it shows up. Like I was the one stressing out and someone had to remind me like, no one knows these expectations you're putting out except you, right? Like the like audience, the Instagram followers, no one knows. It's just all in your head. And sometimes you just need to stop and like breathe and remember, like it'll happen when it happens. Everyone's going through COVID. The supply chain's a mess for everyone. Like no one knows you exist, right? Like you can calm down. So <laughs> it's something I had to tell myself. So other than the kind of this group of like, whether it was friends and family or this group of women you talked about in that professional circle, um, how did you get the word out there? Because you said you, did, you didn't do much paid. You did a little bit of PR. Um, so did you do like a lot of SEO or like, like, or like other unusual like marketing guerrilla kind of style tactics to get the word out about Lilith? Yeah. And I will admit, I am not a marketing person. Like I said, I am more of a tech person. So I didn't even think through this. But at the time of launching pre-orders, we maybe had 300 followers. <laughs> like, really didn't think through it. I just knew that like I had some support and we would figure it out later. And so, and we did a small, pro we, it wasn't a massive production run, but um, we, I had focused mainly on just like building following that way. We didn't do PR till this year, by the way, till 22. So like much after, like months after we had launched. So I had actually started so in September, when we started getting the shoes, I had seeded product, meaning like you give the PR boxes to folks who are running like women in sneaker um, platforms, like Instagrams, where they would highlight, you know, whether you were behind the scenes in development of footwear, or you just like a sneaker influencer. And I found that they had, they were just like my champions before they even knew what I was building. Like before my product existed, they were all about someone doing something in this space because we had all been talking about it for years, right? At that point, like since 2014 onwards, everyone's been vocal, but there really hadn't been a shift in, you know, the, the big businesses, the legacy brands doing anything or let alone independent companies focusing on women specifically. So they were just happy to support and they started inviting me onto their podcast. They started inviting me just creating content based on the product I seeded them. And that got the word out, I would say in the early days. So that was like September to December of 2021. And then I brought on PR support where we got really good write-ups. Um, actually, a friend, actually, before we even did PR, um, someone had, uh, a friend of mine, David, um, had put me in touch with an editor at High Snobiety. Um, and it was really great, just interview with their editor, told our story, and then we used that, to, and then that picked up additional PR for us. So like P 
PR came like much later than our launch. Like we didn't even have proper PR for our launch setup. Um, so everything was out of order. Nothing, <laughs> nothing was sequential as usual. Um, but I would say it's just like really honestly, the supporters who had just like followed us in the early days and, and kind of like referring my name to other podcasts, right? Like, Hey, like you should have Sarah on your podcast. You should. And they've been just an amazing support. Cause in, even in the UK where we weren't so focused, they just have amazing sneaker culture or trainer culture. Um, so they've just been amazingly supportive over there. And I know you started with sneakers and that's kind of the focus, but I actually noticed on your website, you started selling t-shirts and hoodies. Yeah. Is there like, what's uh, like, are you, is it going to become more than a t-shirt or a shoe brand or what is the reason for selling t-shirts and hoodies out of curiosity? So that actually was because I felt terrible that we didn't have the shoes on time. So I wanted something tangible that people can cop. Um, when they were pre-ordering so they can rep the brand, like whether it's through a hat or a beanie or, you know, a hoodie. So they had something physical and they would tag us. And that did really great too, because people would like be super um, great about tagging us in IG content. But it's interesting that you ask because I have always been so hyper-focused on footwear because I feel like that is the biggest gap right now. But I'm definitely getting questions on like, are you going to be a lifestyle brand? Like, can we get tote bags? Like, someone asked me for like body suits. Like we actually have stuff designed. We just haven't executed on a lot of stuff. Like, so I feel like people are slowly asking so much of that. Um, so we'll see where it goes, but right now just super hyper-focused on the footwear. Everything you're describing about why Lilith will be successful makes sense. It's an underserved market. There's huge spend opportunity there, but no one to kind of fulfill that demand. Right. Um, so, and you also said it's a very capital intensive business because it's a physical product. There's manufacturing, yep. all that good stuff. So are you at a point now where you have to make a choice between kind of continuing to grow through your sales and kind of just taking your margins and kind of reinvesting in the business? Or are you now strongly thinking about capital infusion through like whether it's a loan or raising money? I don't know if the current market is great for that, but doing that to kind of help like hyper accelerate your growth, given you've, you've got, you kind of figured out some product market fit with a good yeah. product and like a, a market that really wants it. Yeah. So perfect timing on your part to ask me that. <laughs> I have been bootstrapped for the last two years, but I think the last few months have shown me, especially just from like people's DMs and texts and like just messages from the brand account that there is such an appetite right now for this. And I think that we really need to accelerate because I am a one woman show. Like I have a really lean team. It's Sarah on the footwear side. It's Hannah who helps with graphic design. And then it's me and I'm doing fulfillment as you can see on the, the boxes behind me. So but I think we do need to accelerate. Um, we need to act on all this momentum. And so I actually just kicked off uh, fundraising, which like you said, it's a bear market, but I'm trying to prioritize angels and super angels. So if there's any pummel angels out there, um, hit me up. But yeah, we actually literally just kicked this off like two weeks ago. So it's, um, I think it's time. It's like the perfect time right now. You know, Lululemon just dropped their footwear as well. So I think people are kind of, you know, trying to figure out how to tap the women consumer market, because obviously we are outspending men that, you know, the data doesn't lie. And so people are finally paying attention. So for those of you listening, whenever this episode comes up, this you might be getting in on the ground level and a great brand. So in terms of, okay, so once you do raise this money, like what are your plans with that money? Is it just to kind of scale what you have in terms of the products and like, or do you plan to like release new products or hit up new markets? Yeah. So I think for us, definitely marketing hires. Cause that's not my forte. And I think, you know, one of the rules is always hire, like that's not your expertise and marketing is definitely not it. So definitely someone who can really help drive that. Um, we've actually had quite a bit of inbound wholesale requests and I want to be really strategic there because we have wanted to be a DTC player, but it, you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes some of the bigger brands did was pull back so aggressively against wholesale. I think wholesale can be really interesting if we do it strategically and there are some interesting partners. So, you know, like I mentioned, the trip to Portugal was all about sampling new colorways so that we can get in front of the retailers and figure out what they want to purchase for the 23 year run. So that's kind of been the focus as well. Um, and then it's so funny because like I did a, an ask me anything on Instagram for the first time and people were like, how do I get your shoes in Sri Lanka? How do I get my shoes? Like someone in Costa Rica was like trying to purchase the shoes. So also just trying to prioritize like those key cities that to me have always historically been overlooked or, you know, key markets um, and doing whether it's like a strategic pop-up or having some sort of wholesale presence with a strategic partner there is what we're trying to focus on. Um, because to me, it's the, the brand has always been so representative 
of the diversity of queens. And I think that's what's resonating with the global community. Like this is the first time they're seeing global storytelling um, that's super diverse. Like we use models that are darker skin, right? Like um, um, we don't use white models, for example, um, because that really isn't reflective, I think personally of who the, our consumers are. And so that's how we're trying to diversify. So I think for us, it's it's figuring out those markets that we want to to prioritize in the next year. Remind me to forward you an like um, there's a guy named Chris Mead. He you might have heard of his product. It's called CrossNet. Mm, no, it's, like, it's basically like a volleyball, but like it's like a four sided net. Okay. And he's a DDC guy like Brennan. It just how he built up his company from like zero to like. I think it's like a $50 million a year sales. Oh, and like, wow. and he did it like was direct to consumer first. They needed wholesaler. And it's mm-hmm. like, like, I'm not in the DTC world, but I read his newsletter just to kind of, I don't know, I'm just fascinated by that world. And he just talks about how to price for like each category, how to nice. run promotions. Yeah. Like he's a very numbers person. So I feel like you would appreciate it. So I'll definitely, yeah, definitely. forward you that. Please do. Um, so for Lilith as a brand, I mean, you, I guess you kind of talked about it a bit, but where what is your big like grand vision for little like this you know like what people would think would might be like unachievable but like for you it's like that's where you want to see Lilith and like maybe it's not three years maybe it's five or ten years but the end game money can be hard to come by but here is a hundred dollar opportunity for you join my free newsletter for free exclusive content and a free chance to win a hundred dollars when I hold special draws did I mention that it's free that's a hard one because I sometimes I like to keep my cards close to heart, but I, you know, sometimes <laughs> I even see this brand as like a media company because I think one thing we do really well, even just being bootstrapped, is the strong visuals, like the storytelling and the content. Like we tend to tell stories that often aren't highlighted or spotlighted. So I think there's a potential, just even from a media perspective, um, how do we position beyond just thinking of us as like a footwear play? Um, and that is really driven by the storytelling. So I would say that's kind of maybe the grand vision. <laughs> we'll no, see what evolves. Well, I think Nike is evolving into a media company. You talked about marketing, but like they're getting into storytelling. And I, 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 I can see a world in like five years where like their media division, where they're making films and all the stuff that obviously underlying is trying to sell Nike products. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense what you're saying. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you talked quite a bit about kind of these professional groups uh, obviously, they seem to be like female focused. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Chief and Fender Collective. How did you find out about these groups and kind of what's been the impact of um, these groups? Uh, just because it's something, I mean, obviously, I'm not female, but like a, a group, like a professional group that I feel like I could get supporters in or like pick their brains or just voice frustrations and kind of like what I do as an entrepreneur. So like, I'm curious what these groups have given you um, as a female entrepreneur. Yeah. So I think, you know, most of my career has been in tech. So most of my colleagues have been men. I've often been in a room of 60 men and I've been the only brown woman. So I think this was when I had, when I was at SAP and kind of moving into Nike, I had actually asked Nike like for mentorship. Cause I knew like, like, like I mentioned, I wanted to settle into a role really focused on like career trajectory. How do I get into like a C-suite position type situation? And so I'd asked about mentorship. And at the time, I don't think they really had anything formal in place internally. So I had heard through a friend about this company that had just raised around um, and they were based in New York and they had a clubhouse. And it was kind of a take on how like men used to have these networking clubhouses and they would just have a drink. And literally that's where businesses, business deals were done. And so essentially that was what Chief was. And they had a physical clubhouse in Tribeca. And they also have now it's expanded to different cities. They're and massive now. Yeah. They're massive now. Exactly. Yeah. They're like a unicorn. Um, I've since paused my membership because I can't afford it as a, as a <laughs> founder of Nike paid for my membership. But, uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was just great because that was where I finally like understood like the value of like having worked alongside women and how you have a support system and how, you know, they have this great program called core group where you can, talk about like issues that you're dealing with at work or like just working through like negotiation and pay and all these scenarios. And so that's something I just never had in my, like my entire life, to be honest. Right. Like I've always been in male dominated spaces. Um, so that was awesome. And the other program was female founder collective. Um, after I had quit my job, I actually enrolled in a, it's a kind of an accelerator. It was called project entrepreneur. It was like in partnership with UBS bank, um, and female founder collective. 
And that was just great because it just brought together women founders who were working on like, whether it was DTC or B2B businesses. And we had different cohorts um, and it was a four month program. And it like helped us like figure out like, how do you fundraise and what's the valuation cap? What's, you know, everything and everything about fundraising. So yeah, I mean, I think those, those networks, like it's crazy to think that they didn't exist like 10 years ago, but it's amazing that women who are, you know, even entering the career force for the first time, like as new grads finally have access to this, to these types of communities, because they didn't exist when I was much younger. So what's your advice to your fellow female Tamil entrepreneurs out there? I would say, trust your gut, trust your intuition, like filter through the noise. I think oftentimes just as even as a Tamil woman, like our families tend to get in our heads or even our friends. Um, but I would say you're always trust your gut. Um, that's always helped me. And if you had a chance to go back in a time machine and visit 16 year old Sarah, what would you tell her? I think I told you I would, you know, tell her to stop skipping track practice. Um, but I'll try to give you a different answer. <laughs> I would say like, stop worrying about like everyone else. I think when you're, in, when you're in high school, like those are like such impressionable years where you're just like, oh, well, what's this person going to major in? Like, it's funny when I look back at all the high schoolers I went to, like no one who like was at the top of the class, like necessarily like pursued that career path that they thought they were going to be on. Like we're all on these various journeys. So I think it's like, take things less seriously. Like, to be honest, like, I think people like in high school were like so intense for no reason. And I'm like, everything's going to work out in the end. And I guess on the flip side, if you were looking forward at your personal legacy, how would you want to be remembered by your friends and family? Ooh, I feel like I'm stuck on this one. Um, it's a hard one. I don't know. I think that like that I tried. I think that's the biggest thing. Like I just, you know, you have to just like try. Otherwise, you're going to have this sense of regret. So I would say like she tried. Well, that's a good segue into the last part of the episode, which is a game I like to call Creator Confessions. It's basically a speed round. I'm going to say a bunch of statements. You tell me the first thing that pops to mind. Ready, Sarah? Mm-hmm. Favorite Tamil food? Idiot bum and fish curry. Something that scares you? Not being able to scale quick enough. Insecurity you have? That I... Ooh, insecurity that I have. I know this is supposed to be rapid fire. Um, Like rejection, just like whether it's through a customers or like feedback loops, you know? Favorite show you're watching? Nothing, because there's no good content right now. I've been watching Stranger Things, but it's taking me forever to get through. Uh, place you're itching to travel to? Um, I haven't been to Sri Lanka in like since 2019. So I'm hoping to get there in December. A fellow Tamil creator you want to give a shout out to? I'll say Usha Jay because her video has been circulating on the internet and she's so dope. Favorite childhood memory? Hanging out in Queens, like just walking to the library. (laughs) (laughs) Something you like to do for fun outside of work? I haven't been doing it much, but like just restaurant hopping. Like I always used to like dine out, try new wines. What's your favorite type of food? Uh, I would say like Southeast Asian, like I have a lot of great, like I live in a neighborhood that has really great Thai, Malaysian, Hmm. Indonesian. Um, Favorite movie of all time? It can be Tamil, English or both. Uh, I don't watch Tamil movies as much, so I won't know. Favorite movie of all time. Okay, this is not a good one. This is very niche, but it was, I wouldn't say it's favorite of all time, but I'm just going to say it. But it was Cutting Edge, which was this movie about a hockey player that goes blind in one eye. And he is going to become a figure skater to compete in the Olympics. It's like an 80 movies in the 80s. It's ridiculous, but I love it. A purchase you've made in the last couple of years that you splurged on, but you have no regret about it. I bought quite a few designer bags. I felt like I was working in tech and like when you, I used to dress like a, such a startup scrub, like, (laughs) like a guy. And so like, I would always buy like these like boss bags, like, you know, like big designer bags, like for going to meetings, people wouldn't think like I was the decision maker in a room because I was dressed like a dad. <laughs> um, pet peeve. Incompetency. Oh, maybe I should clarify. Um, yeah, we'll just stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, a person or celebrity that you look up to? I think my fellow um, female founders, like I have a recurring meeting with them every like twice a month. And I think like their resiliency, especially like to be working in this bear market, this downturn market right now is who I look up to. If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, a regret that you would have. Not traveling enough. I feel like I've paused for two years. Like I just want to be on the road again. Age you want to retire by. When I say retire, it's basically do what you want when you want. 45. Maybe now. I'll take it now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Celebrity or I guess person whose life you want to experience for just one day. Any billionaire, to be honest, I'm not even gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, a book you've read or a podcast you've listened to recently 
that's had a big impact on you? A book that I've read. I haven't been doing much reading or listening to podcasts. Or just really any piece of content that's like had an impact on you. Maybe it's an article you read. Maybe it's like an episode of TV. I've been reading, this is so boring because I'm fundraising right now, but I've been reading a newsletter by, I think his name is Jason Y-E-H. And he just gives tips for like founders about like, you know, should you raise on a safe note? Should you raise on a convertible note? What's the downside for the founder? So I've been reading a lot of boring business content. Well, it's useful. Um, it, is, it is, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's not stuff you talk about at the table. No. <laughs> um, a belief, behavior, or habit that has improved your life. I think it's the following the intuition. I think for so long, sometimes you listen to too many people's opinions. Like everyone has an opinion around you. I think it's learning how to really hone in and filter through like, yeah, some people have sage advice, but sometimes some people just say things to say it. You just got to follow your intuition. Like what you thought was right the first time was more often than not the right path. And finally, what's a piece of advice that you would give to your fellow aspiring Tamil creators out there? I would say like, it always feels like it's never the right time to like take that leap. And like, for me, it was the 2015. I probably could have like, to be honest, I probably could have done a lot more in 2015 than I did. Um, so even if it's starting small, like my boss had said at the time, who was the CEO, he was like, just start blogging. Like I probably kind of probably should have doubled down on that, like built out like a content portfolio um, that could have helped me as early as five years prior to when I started doing what I did. So I would say take the leap sooner than later. You take that, take that risk. I think sometimes we tend to be a little risk averse. Awesome. Well, that's a good way to end off the podcast, Sarah. That was a great episode. Um, for people listening that were inspired by your story, want to reach out, maybe be, maybe that angel you're looking for, um, what's the best way for them to uh, reach out to you? Um, they can follow us on Instagram at lilith.nyc, L-I-L-I-T-H dot N-Y-C. Also lilith.nyc is our website. And you can email me at Sarah with an H at lilith.nyc. Awesome. Well, thank you again for making time to share your awesome story. And for those of you listening, appreciate you guys as always. On to the next episode. Thanks so much for having me. It was so much fun.